Above the Basement Boston Music and Conversation features casual and candid discussions with musicians, artists, and others from Boston and beyond. While music is the common thread, we are proud to share conversations that harness culture and community, health, science, and other topics of human interest. We present to you this special episode from our music and health series called Music, Addiction, and Recovery. We're all kind of survivors of this epidemic, whether we've been directly affected or somebody we love, we've lost. So we're all touched by this. There's so much hope, and this is, again, it's just finding the right treatment and also sticking with the person and knowing that it's not an exit off the highway, that it's a little circuitous, but nobody can do it alone. I love being sober. I love the fact that you can call on me at any time and I will be the best I can be. There is not one 19-year-old addict out there today who wants to be an addict. My life is recovery. My wife's in recovery. My daughters, you know, they're part of the process. People are talking about it. People aren't hiding in the shadows. Years ago, you would say, oh, he died of a heart attack. Now, at least in our group, we can say it out loud. And I try to help them to be able to say it out loud to the rest of the community, because that's the only way we can help each other if we know we're not alone. When I'm taking that pause, that moment, sometimes it's literally five seconds as I'm gasping for air between songs, I'm able to appreciate it in its purest form. It's not through the lens of drugs and alcohol. It's real, and it only feeds that moment's like realness for me. Music has a way of bringing people together. It's a language we all share. Let's take recovery, recovery from drugs and alcohol. Now, this has its own language, too, and within it, its own culture of addiction. So we're all affected by substance use disorder, many of us personally, through family, friends, and globally as a society, economically and politically. So the numbers can tell a part of the story. For instance, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention shows a climbing epidemic from 1999 through 2017. And you can see that in that last year in 17, that 72,000 drug overdoses were estimated. Now, to dive into that a little bit more, 30,000 are estimated from the newer synthetic compound fentanyl, which is much more powerful than heroin, and we'll get into that. The numbers can scare us. The numbers are real. However, it's the people who really live this struggle and fight for recovery and education every day that bring this story to the surface. It brings it to our living rooms and our boardrooms, schools, and to the stage. So Above the Basement met with some of the key people who care deeply about this cause, those in recovery, the doctors who treat and support our patients and families who have lost loved ones, the musicians who have had firsthand experiences with addiction and understand the toll it can have on careers and families, 
Our music and recovery discussions began in August 2018 with the founders of Above the Noise Foundation, an organization with a mission to stomp stigma and elevate support for those in and in need of recovery. We really just wanted to rise above the noise, all that noise. We wanted it to be about community and music and families and love and recovery and people who were doing great things the best they could, where they could, with what they had. We just wanted to rise above the noise. Kristen Williams-Hasiotis and Maureen Cavanaugh, with the passion and support from local iconic musician James Montgomery, set out to create the first-of-its-kind large-scale sober music festival. The people that are working on this project and on this concert and in this foundation are doing it with their whole heart. I mean, this is the most unbelievable group of people that want to make a difference and are just going to do whatever it takes to make that happen. And it's so needed right now. This is history right here. The festival took place at McCoy Stadium in Pawtucket, Rhode Island on September 29th, 2018. To my knowledge, this is the first sober festival ever. An eight-hour event headlined by Grammy-winning rap and pop star Macklemore, The Amazing Fits in the Tantrums, and others like Paris, Grace Kelly, Livingston Taylor, and many more. The goal? To bring together those in recovery, families, allies of the addicted, the nonprofits and healthcare providers that drive the machine of recovery, and the musicians who care enough to speak out and support and share their talents. Music stimulates our brains and actually triggers the same neurotransmitters that drugs and sex and even that piece of chocolate cake that you're deciding about eating. This is the reward system of the central nervous system and the path that the chemical dopamine travels briskly through to its specific targets so it may not be such of a surprise that music has been sought after day after day for this effect. Success itself may feed into an addiction on and off the stage, as Michael Fitzpatrick, or Fitz, of Fitz and the Tantrums, told us backstage at Recovery Fest. Being on stage, I've gone through many evolutions of always sort of chasing another kind of dragon, which is, you know, this idea of success. And you set up a benchmark for yourself and you get there and uh, it doesn't fill that hole inside of you. So then you set a loftier goal and then you get there and it doesn't. And for somebody like myself, you know, I've been fortunate enough that it wasn't a modified version, an abridged version of my dream. My exact dream, my exact childhood dream came true. And then I didn't feel any better. And that's a really interesting place that goes back to that idea of looking for outside things to fill that hole inside, which I think obviously is one of the greatest motivators for why there's addiction. The curse of this epidemic is not exactly helped by societal stigma. We have a ways to go, socially, medically, and politically, in the addiction crisis in the U.S. However, we have certainly come far at the same time. In 1914, the Harrison Narcotic Tax Act was passed, and beyond commerce and tax regulation, it made it illegal for doctors to prescribe opiates for addiction. At that time, and for decades forward, this growing problem had not been considered a disease, rather a societal misconduct issue. 
or a moral failure. The stigma of the addict is not new. It has affected the medical treatment and chance of recovery for more than 100 years. We make it so hard for people to get well. We've built a treatment system that is unwelcoming, that's hard to access, that has barriers at every single step along the road. Dr. Sarah Wakeman, assistant professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School and the director of the Substance Use Disorder Initiative at Mass General Hospital, tells us it's not all about stigma. And perhaps the lag of 100 years has finally caught up with us, with a system that can start to handle the issue, we hope. Oftentimes people are facing huge stigma when they try to come into care in a medical setting. And we have tons of policies in this country that criminalize people who use drugs that make their life that much harder. So you imagine you have somebody struggling with a chronic, potentially fatal illness, and then what do we do to them? We take their kids away, we take their jobs away, we take their housing away, we put them in prison, we tell them they can't get medical care, we make them go somewhere else for treatment, we stigmatize them for the type of treatment they get. And so we've created all these barriers that make it really hard to get good evidence-based effective treatment. And yet it's very easy to stay sick because in many ways, ongoing use is, is the easier choice when you set up a system like that. Stigma is present and pervasive in our culture, whether related to substance use disorder or mental illness. But there is hope, just like in other diseases, not only to evolve socially, but medically and politically. The term substance abuse, it turns out, is a really stigmatizing term. And it's not a word that we use with any other health condition. So the word abuse actually actually comes from an old English word that means a willful act of misconduct. So if you think about things we refer to with that terminology, it's things like child abuse or sexual assault or domestic violence. These really terrible willful acts of commission of violence that imply that the person is doing something bad. And yet with addiction, we're using that sort of language and we talk about patients. You know, we're essentially telling patients that we think they're to blame for the cause of their illness. And that may sound just like semantics, but there's actually been really interesting research that if you do studies where you take highly trained clinicians and you present them with the description of a case and all you do is you change whether you call the person a substance abuser or a person with a substance use disorder, the clinician's actually more likely to recommend punishing treatment to the person described as a substance abuser. So language really matters and we've made a huge effort across our work to update our language and not use abuse obviously, but also not use things like clean or dirty or other terminology that again is very different than how we talk about other illnesses and really sends a negative message to patients and to people who are struggling. That rush, that drug, that dope. Those pills, that crumb, that roach Thinking I would never do that, not that drug Growing up, nobody ever does Until you're stuck, looking in the mirror Like I can't believe what I've become So I was gonna be someone And growing up, everyone always does We sell our dreams and our potential To escape through that buzz Just keep me up, keep me up Hollywood, here we come Maureen Cavanaugh is a mother and true advocate for change who strives to make a real dent in this epidemic through outreach, education, listening, and now writing. Her new book, If You Love Me, A Mother's Journey Through Her Daughter's Opioid Addiction, tells the story of her daughter Katie and Katie's chronic struggle through multiple overdoses and relapses and the impact it had on her and her family. Her family is like yours, mine, and millions of us around the country. This is like a perfect example of it can't happen to me, and not because it didn't. I come from this. I've come from alcoholism and drug addiction. I grew up in that kind of environment. I thought that if I raised my children away from that and they never saw it, that it wouldn't affect them. And I did that, and I worked hard, and I educated myself, and have four beautiful children, and all raised the same way. And one of them had that genetic predisposition for a substance use disorder. And she was like the perfect kid all through high school and started doing drugs in high school, but I didn't really know about it. And it turned into a full-blown heroin addiction that lasted years. 
I thought I was smarter and I was raising my children better and didn't realize that even myself, I had just dodged a bullet and she got the full barrel. This is how things like that happen. So we like to protect ourselves that we this can't happen to us because we did all these things right. And I'm here to say that you can do all those things right. And I know many, many, many people that their children are, are lost in this disease. They've done everything they possibly could do to help them. And their children have done everything they could possibly do to find their way out of this because nobody wants to live like this. No one. We were so struck with Maureen and her daughter's story. This is one family among millions of us affected. But unlike some other diseases, common diseases like cancer, many people with opiate addiction or substance use disorder are alone, neglected by families, and without the support they need. Dr. Laura Kehoe, Assistant Professor of Medicine at Harvard Medical School and the Bridge Clinic Medical Director at Mass General Hospital. The one piece that really has been sorely missed and very misunderstood is how important the family is in this illness. And parents get mixed messages all the time, this very punitive, stigmatized approach to this you know, kick them out if they're not ready, change the locks, they have to hit rock bottom. The stark reality about this illness is that most of our patients that come at that stage come alone, unlike other illnesses like cancers, where they often come with a loved one who may be there to help them absorb the diagnosis or support them or take notes. And that's an opportunity to work with the family and meet them then. But when we have the luxury that family is there with the person, we do everything we can after we meet with the patient to encourage to bring them in and and talk to them and actually do what we do with the patients, which is first and foremost, educate them about this illness and what works, what doesn't work, and then help them to get their own support. This disease is not unlike other chronic struggles. Take diabetes. Do we stigmatize and not provide the care people need during diabetic ketoacidosis crisis in the emergency room when the body cannot keep up with the need for insulin? Yeah, I mean, I would say diabetes is probably the best example because you have this huge range of kind of severity of illness and what type of treatments work for people. And yet at the same time, we know very clearly from science sort of what the range of effective interventions are and what goals we want to target with our treatment. And then we tailor that to the human being in front of us. So for example... You may identify someone early on with mild diabetes or pre-diabetes and with lifestyle intervention alone, like diet and exercise and weight loss, they can go into remission and they never need medication. They're not coming into the hospital with terrible complications from their illness. Someone else you might identify with more severe diabetes where they could try just as hard and make the same lifestyle interventions as that first person and they're going to need insulin for the rest of their lives because their pancreas is so injured. In those circumstances, we don't judge the person who needs insulin. We don't talk about whether we believe in insulin or don't believe in insulin. We just talk about what's the right treatment for that human being in front of us and how do we make sure that they meet whatever their goals are in health. And we have our clinical goals as doctors, but what really matters is what matters to the patient. You know, what's going to help them stay out of the hospital, stay well, be able to do the things they want. And the same analogy would apply to addiction. I would say the first problem is that the way our system is set up, we're usually identifying people when they're sort of in the equivalent of diabetic ketoacidosis or diabetic coma. You know, we're identifying them when they have very severe illness and they're coming to the hospital after an overdose after some terrible consequence in the midst of this climate where every episode of use is potentially fatal because of the unregulated and inconsistent drug supply right now. And so the stakes are really high, and that's why having access to life-saving medication at every turn is so important. Relapse happens, just like crises in many other medical conditions. Although common, it is treatable. So when our loved one relapses, there is help. One thing concretely that we'll see, say, in Bridge Clinic is we'll see somebody who actually has been doing as one would expect 
the natural history of substance use disorder would bear out. So it's a chronic, meaning non-curable, long-lasting illness that relapses. People say that often, and you'll hear people in recovery circles, you'll hear providers say relapse is part of the illness, relapse is part of recovery. And yet when it happens, Mm -hmm. people panic, and they often will kick people out of care and say, you're not ready this time. And in terms of opioid use disorder, where every single one time somebody uses, they're at risk of literally overdosing or overdosing and dying. That's a very dangerous practice to kick people out of care. So we will see, for example, somebody who comes through the emergency room who's had an overdose, when we get the history, they have been in a treatment program, they maybe had a relapse or, God forbid, missed an appointment with somebody. And because of that, they're penalized and that life-saving medication is taken away and then they're left to deal with this illness and they're punished. If they were really in a treatment program, like, say, the Bridge Clinic or Sarah's Clinic, or that would be an opportunity for us to break down that relapse and say, well, what led up to it? Or the patient with diabetes whose sugar is elevated. Well, what's been going on? Let's try to really deconstruct that rather than deconstructing you. And let's try to work together to come up with a plan that's safe for you and alter that plan. So wait, let's break this down. If the heart fails in heart failure, or the pancreas is impaired in diabetes, then what is disrupted in addiction? And if we know what the problem is, then what is the treatment for opioid addiction? Is there a sort of insulin equivalent for the brain that someone with opioid addiction needs to regulate this disease and help them function? Yeah. I mean, so addiction's complicated. It affects a lot of different circuits in the brain that impact reward and motivation and memory and sort of judgment decision-making. The simplest way to think of it is we all have kind of deep impulses to do things that feel good or to make us feel better. But most of us, sort of past the age of 26, have highly formed frontal lobes or what we'd call your prefrontal cortex, which is kind of the part of your brain that allows you to think about consequence. I sort of describe it as like the brakes in your brain. So you may have an impulse to do something that would feel really good or taste really good. And yet you're able to think, oh man, you know, I'm watching my blood sugar because I have diabetes or I have to get up and work tomorrow or, you know, I need to take care of my kids and you can put the brakes on that impulse. What we see from actually looking at functional imaging of the brain of someone who's dealing with active addiction is that braking system isn't working very well. And so you can actually see that that part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex, isn't as active as in someone who doesn't have addiction. And so I often think of it as like you're driving down a hill and the brakes are shot. So you're sort of urged to do something to make yourself feel better, to not feel sick, because by the time people are using, they're often in withdrawal and feeling terrible. Um, So you want to feel better, and yet your ability to kind of pump the brakes and say, wait a minute, but I don't want the negative consequences that I know are going to come with this really isn't working. And so those are some of the mismatches that we see. Before we continue, if you would like more information about substance use disorder and the fine organizations represented or mentioned in this episode, please visit our website at abovethebasement.com forward slash music and health. Now on to the conclusion of music, addiction, and recovery. Darn, you guys. So together we stood in this beautiful listening to Livingston Taylor kickoff Recovery Fest 2018. Fading autumn Son, you have no idea how beautiful you look this afternoon. God, I'm glad to be here with you. Strangers yet allies, those in recovery next to those in need. Oh, beautiful for heroes proved in liberating strife who more themselves their country and were seen more than life 
Recovery. It's the period of time that someone maintains sobriety. It is not synonymous with cure. Recovery is a process and a concept, not an end result. And it can simply be a feeling as well, as Chris tells us at Recovery Fest 2018, who is fresh into his own recovery. What does recovery mean to you, man? Uh, freedom. Peace. And are you in recovery now? I am. Two months. But I've been longer. It's not about time. It's about the feeling, uh, how serious you are about it. I mean, one day one day is as good as uh, 100 years if you believe it. You know what I mean? Like if you feel it. Perhaps the closest we can come to any cure of the disease of addiction is in some ways the tincture of time, says Dr. Wakeman. And the bottom line is the goal is to get people in the long-term care in whatever setting that means. And we know from studies it takes about five years of remission or recovery before someone's risk of relapse drops to the same level as anyone in the general population. Many people stay sober for days to weeks, even months, while the real risk of relapse looms over their heads. When we met with Robin Houston Bean, who sadly lost her son in 2015 from an overdose, we learned about the roller coaster of addiction and recovery, and importantly, the notion that well-intentioned families and friends focus on cure. It makes sense that rehab has succeeded, and he or she is now out of the woods. I thought he was cured. Look at this kid. He's doing so great. He's got a job. He's happy. We're happy. Everything is great. This is amazing. I didn't know the shoe could drop at any time. I'm sure he probably, because it had been seven months, had no idea that there was now fentanyl in the, the product that was out there, too. So he took even more of a chance because, you know, this is what happens to the kids. They, you know, they're not using for a long period of time. They go back, use the same amount, or the mixture is different. And the majority of people that are in my grief group, it's now more fentanyl than heroin. Right now, cocaine and fentanyl are higher than the heroin and fentanyl combinations that you're finding for the deaths. We have to talk about that, right? A person can have two years in recovery and still relapse. Again, recovery is the time that we spend sober, but it also can manifest in different ways for different people. And for Fitz, it means something every day for him and his new family. I know the power that sobriety has had for me as a man, as a human being. I grew up in an alcoholic home and, you know, I have two young boys. You know, I have a five-year-old and a 17-month-old back at home. And, you know, when I think about my son, especially my older one, because he's, you know, talking and asking me questions about life and death and all these things already at five the idea that he's never seen me loaded ever is everything to me you know That idea of presenting my son with an image of what a man can be without the crutch of alcohol. It's really something that, that I cherish every day. The lifestyle of rock music in the road can be non-stop, adrenaline-packed, and peppered with drug use, late nights, and probably not taking care of oneself. Because musicians and others in the entertainment world can be our role models, especially at young ages, they can use this platform, their stage, to promote recovery and stomp stigma. I just want to state maybe the obvious, maybe not. But if it wasn't for recovery, I wouldn't be on this stage here tonight. I first went to rehab in 2008, and my life was at a standstill. I was treading water, I was killing myself. And I went to rehab and I got these tools, right? And I realized that I couldn't do this on my own anymore. I couldn't substitute one drug for another drug. 
I couldn't just do it this weekend and not do it the next weekend. Stopping on Monday never stopped on Monday. I just kept going and going and going and I finally, finally, after years and years and years of battling with this disease on my own without a way out, I finally found a community of people that share the same experience that I had. Sure, we hear about the tragic stories, the overdoses, relapses. There can be a sense of futility and despair, especially in opiate addiction. But when it comes to hope, listen not only to the families and advocates, but the doctors who treat the disease on the front lines. The key and the thing that I love about Above the Noise is that right under it, it says hope and recovery. And that's what gets us all to work is that, you know, there's this this narrative that people with addiction, that everybody is overdosing and dying and this is so dire. But really, the majority of people get better if they get the right treatment and this treatment works. And so treating people with compassion and with these low barrier immediate access care, we see people get better. So really, there's a lot of hope to be celebrated. It is clear. Clear that when it comes to addiction with heroin and fentanyl, that recovery is possible with maintenance treatment, specifically with the drug Suboxone. Suboxone evens out the cravings, keeps us from becoming sick, and avoids the extreme highs. It weakly binds to the same receptors that these powerful drugs target. It is more recently providing hope and helping dramatically decrease relapses in a way that abstinence cannot. More than anything, more than my medical school education or training or all of the science about this, I think the biggest tool I bring to work and that I get from work is being a human being and going back to humanity and that this is, for all the reasons we talked about an illness of isolation and complete despair, both the patient and their community and family member. And so I think the strongest tool that we can use as providers is empathy and compassion. If you're long-term sobriety, if you got two friggin' days, welcome. Stay. This is the best journey that I can ever hope for another human being. Recovery is a journey, and it is not one size fits all. For the last 10 years, I've really had to uh, to find an inner strength because, you know, I'm a, a touring musician, and the lifestyle of rock and roll isn't necessarily, for most people, a sober one, and most places we go are filled with alcohol and drugs you know and it's interesting because uh, you know i started in this band and i was already 10 years sober but i really had to sort of carve out my own path of how to do sobriety on the road which means sometimes you know i just have to seek out a meeting on my own music cares which is an amazing organization at a lot of festivals usually i can find a meeting to go to and so for me you know when they approached me about being a part of this it was a hundred percent yes right out the gate because this is the first music festival that's completely focused on recovery and sobriety and hopefully you know there's even some people that you know as you're saying that maybe have three days or maybe they have no days or maybe they're struggling and this will be one of those moments that can inspire them but for me in my path as a musician and being in this band uh, I don't think I'd be where I am today without having been sober 
Kristen Williams Hasiotis shows us how we can turn something potentially deadly into something positive and how to plant the seed for something bigger than us all. I am a business person who, when I was 19, didn't know what addiction was, but knew that I stopped, couldn't stop using cocaine or alcohol. So I called a psychiatric hospital to say I was crazy. And then they explained what addiction was. And I went into treatment, went back to my lovely university, and found out that there were other people like me and they were getting kicked out of school. So I started a program for students who had issues with alcohol or drug-related issues and they were being expelled. So I said, well, we should really have a program for these kids because I'm one of them. And so I became, myself and one other student, just became people that went around and told my story. And I was an inadvertent advocate who then went on to work in human services with recovery and addiction. Wanna live a peace, have a good time. Living a life on a good ride. Never really thought that I was gonna be a good guy. I survived way past what they thinking it was good. Right before the miracle happened, I didn't give up and then a miracle happened. Baltimore hip hop artist B Rain is in recovery himself and his music is about hope and happiness. He won the Above the Noise Indie Band Contest and was thrilled to perform on the same stage as Macklemore at Recovery Fest. To him it's about showing up and standing up. I'm a humble guy, but I fall short. It's about being a part of the solution. And I feel like that's what this music festival and really anything that is a part of the action for recovery is just being a part of the solution. You got that freedom. We can talk about addiction and we can talk about how bad things are or we can talk about how we can help other people. What can I do to help somebody else? What can I do to lift them up and, and get them out of that? We have certainly come very far since the early 1900s. And while the drugs are stronger and the epidemic is real, there is still definite potential for good outcomes. We know that the models for identification and treatment of this disease are working. So in the inpatient setting, we've studied that pretty extensively and found that patients who are seen by the addiction consult team when they're in the hospital do much better after discharge. So they have less days of substance use. They have lower addiction severity, which is sort of a metric that you can measure how severe someone's addiction is. They report that they are less likely to go back to the emergency room or the hospital. Utilizing hospitalization as a reachable moment leads to improvements in substance use outcomes. In the outpatient setting, we found that patients who receive their primary care in a practice that has addiction treatment right there in primary care have fewer emergency department visits, they stay in the hospital longer, so they seem to do better as well. They're able to actually get the services they need right there in the, in the primary care practice. The families that have gone through unimaginable suffering have taught us that prevention is possible and recovery is real. There are signs that you can look for and we're working on different solutions for different things. And one of them is relapse prevention. And what can we do about that? Like, how can we help families recognize the signs? That's your biggest risk factor is when you're in a period of abstinence, whether it's forced or voluntary, what can we do to help? There is genuine pride in these voices, and they've embraced sobriety as cool as a message and as a guiding force in their lives. There are people with hopes and dreams, successes and failures, ups and downs, just like the rest of us. So for me to like get to walk in a festival and walk amongst so many people that are walking that path in the same way that I am, it just feels liberating. The synergy of music and the message of recovery was undeniably powerful and special on September 29th at Recovery Fest. There was palpable energy without substances, elation without drugs, and all around us so many reasons to care. The thing that always haunted me when I did drink and drug was the notion that my responsibility 
is not to be chosen, but to be ready to be chosen. And I like the notion of being ready. Look up at night, you're never alone. The phrase I use is, it is sad to be ready and not be called. I know you're there, I know you are. It is tragic to be called and not be ready. I like being ready. Above the Basement wants to thank all of our guests who dedicated the time to talk with us and who fight and stand up for recovery every day. Special thank you to Above the Noise Foundation for setting an example for all of us. Thank you very much to Mass General and the work you do at the Substance Use Disorder Initiative and at the Bridge Clinic. Thank you to McCoy Stadium and Peak 15 Event Group, who with Above the Noise Inspiration pulled off an amazing festival, Recovery Fest 2018. We would like to thank you for listening to this very special episode. For more information about substance use disorder and all the organizations mentioned, including the Mass General Substance Use Disorders Initiative, the Bridge Clinic, the Above the Noise Foundation, the Sun Will Rise Foundation, and several others that our guests support, please visit abovethebasement.com forward slash music and health. We'll also include links to the websites for all the musicians who were kind enough to talk with us where you can learn more about them and their music. Thank you very much for listening, and remember, Boston music, like its history, is unique.